The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Hey everybody, this is part two of the interview with doctors Don Newman and Barbara Zupan. They'll continue to describe alexithymia and what to do about it. Alexithymia is sometimes a sequelae of brain injury that makes it difficult for the survivor to recognize emotions in others as well as in themselves. I'd like to remind you that if you want to donate to our humble podcast, there's two ways to do it. First, you can Venmo and our Venmo address is at Neurons. There's also a PayPal QR code that you can scan on the Noggins and Neurons Podbean site. We have a lot coming up in terms of guests. Upcoming episodes include two certified stroke rehabilitation specialists, Jenna Coleman, an occupational therapist and owner of Trio Rehab down in Texas, and Suzanne McCrum, a physical therapist also of Trio Rehab. Later in October, we have two physical therapists, Meredith Drake and Jennifer Miller. Later in October, we have two physical therapists, Meredith Drake, and Jennifer Miller from the Ataxia Center at Johns Hopkins to talk to us about how to treat cerebellar ataxia. We'll also have a cerebellar stroke survivor who has ataxia, Stephen Heim, who is also an acute care nurse. And so he knows about his own pathology sort of from the inside out. We're gonna get a great perspective from him. He taught the Miami Emergency Neurological Deficit, the MEND exam, which is one of the tests used in intensive care and the emergency department by nurses to help diagnose stroke. So that's gonna be a great episode. And then there's a bunch of other cool stuff that we have scheduled, but, but let's get on with this episode with doctors Don Newman and Barbara Zupan. I think as therapists, if you're really looking for something tangible to use, just grab a movie or a TV show and, you know, stop and pause at various scenes. Like, I think that would be a really useful task that you could get um, that more, I always say ecologically valid, but that more everyday way. I mean, it's still acting, but um, it's a better example of how we use and express emotion and the way we need to use all of the cues around us to interpret not just one thing. So I think that that's a really good thing that therapists could could look to do.
Is it? All right, what did you guys do? Did you check on the dog? Checked on the dog, yelled at the fiance. <laughs> when are you getting married? So um, my daughter is going into speech therapy. She's going into her senior year. Oh, that's yep. exciting. Where? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a good question. She did well on her. What is that test that you take that I always forget? It's not the MCAT. It's the... Oh, uh, the GREs? GRE. Yeah, she did well. And she did well in math, which shocked all of us, her more than anybody, I think. What? Math? No. Um, so now she's trying to figure out where she can go to, uh, to maybe help mom and dad pay for the darn thing and uh and she got some help with the director of her um of her program you guys have any good suggestions for schools for my daughter but where are you located i'm sorry i should probably Cin- know that cincinnati she goes to university of cincinnati um somebody said toledo was real good she should uh, go to fredonia what what is that is that a place in italy it's a, Su- <laughs> it's a suny school <laughs> Oh, it is? Yeah, it's yeah. actually, Fredonia's um, not far from where Don and I did our degrees at Buffalo. Yeah. I'm like, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know anything about it. It's a good speech school. Is it? it is, actually. It's a good program. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll suggest it. I think yeah. IU Bloomington is supposed to have, I know I know a couple, like the speech therapist that I know there that trains clinically, Rebecca Eberly, who wrote the social cognition mm-hmm. chapter with us, Barb, she, like, just they're awesome. Her and um, Laura Kirchner, I think it is. They're, I mean, they're really, they're great. Peter, why don't you send her to Rockhampton, Central Queensland? Yeah. <laughs> My program. She'd love that. Yeah. Hey, Pete. Barbara, you know, she's not allowed to listen to this podcast no no absolutely (laughs) um my wife is finnish she's from finland and we often Hmm. try to get our kids to go to finland because it's free and that we have family there um but i bet australia would be a better choice because in finland half of the year you're freezing your off and that's no fun and it's dark but australia just sounds like the best place in the world even winter here is i've got to do the math now it's about 70 to 80 degrees in the daytime during winter here and no mass <laughs> no COVID. but they can't leave what oh well they well they can't they're, leave they're they have to stay home that country's ginormous they can go anywhere they want <laughs> it's kind of true <laughs> well good uh, okay. did anybody come up with any good discussion points because i have a question but deb did you come up with anything or no i've just been thinking about everything we talked about how might you tell like is there a big difference between cognition and alexithymia is it can they they obviously affect each other are they that separate are they processed differently might the problem that we were talking about before where clinicians go in and there's the hub of of rehab and everybody's working on everything and you're trying to get them walking and doing everything else um is some of the emotional inappropriateness or inability to interpret emotions is part of that just a belief that it's a cognitive problem and so they just go yeah it's cognitive he has brain injury that's not even a question is it no i think it's a i think it's a great question and it's it's an interesting one because i i used to look at alexi Thymia as an it's it's an emotional issue but i i've come the more i've gotten into this the more i think about it the more i realize it so it's it is an aspect of emotion regulation but um and, and emotional processing but i very much believe it is a cognitive 
cognitive act. It's cognitive, it's cognizance, it's awareness of your emotions and the cognitive ability to label and describe when you're labeling and describing your emotions, you're pulling in prefrontal cortex. So it's very much of a cognitive act of evaluation and understanding of those emotions that helps you then to regulate and control those emotions. Does that make sense? It's almost like a cognitive appraisal. It, it To some degree, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in the cognizant awareness too. And then I've had people ask about, well, you have the general self-awareness, right? In, in brain injury, right? A lot of people with brain injury just lack complete self-awareness of, of their skills and their abilities. And I feel like alexithymia is very... Um, a specific lack of awareness that just be, if I think just because you have alexithymia doesn't mean you have a more global self-awareness deficit mm. necessarily, but there's that kind of that metacognition, that self-monitoring evaluation, that's all, that's all involved. And it's very cognitively oriented, I believe. And then you get into the empathy and then you have empathy where I feel like then you're breaking it down. It's like you have cognitive empathy, you have emotional empathy. I think something else that was really interesting and something that we found, and I think it's important to mention, is is also um, recognizing that sometimes people actually aren't expressing an emotion. So there's times where we say something and our no- emotion is neutral and it's meant to be neutral and um, trying not to read into that. So one of our studies that we did found that both people with and without traumatic brain injury didn't do very well at neutral partially because the study was based on emotion, right? So there's that bias. So in general, people were looking for emotion, but where the real interesting difference was people with traumatic brain injury, if they didn't recognize the neutral, they tended to lean towards identifying it as a negative emotion. Whereas people without brain injury lean towards a positive one. So it, it was almost like that difference in, you know, they're expressing nothing, but they must be feeling something. They must be mad at me or they must be um, feeling something negative. And so you can imagine how that plays out in an interact communication as well. And so I think, you know, some of those kinds of things are important for people to recognize that if if they're responding negatively and you did nothing, you need to po- be very explicit and say, no, no, I didn't. I wasn't feeling angry with you. I wasn't feeling um, annoyed with you because I, I think they might be reading something that's not there. You know, whether it's projection of them having these negative emotions themselves and it's kind of getting projected on somebody else when there's a neutral response. But some of the other research that I've done on something called negative attribution bias and how people with brain injury, when they are interpreting other people's intentions, they're are a subset of people who are more inclined to just assign more negative interpretations of people's feelings and people's behaviors. So that's going to play out whether you're, you know, interpreting the emotion or interpreting why somebody is doing something. There's just this, you know, inclination to kind of see it in a more negative light. Yeah. Um, If in eye tracking uh, software, when they track the eyes and they try to pick up um, different parts of the face, I saw some research in into autism and autistic people tend to focus on the mouth more than others do. Is there any insight into visual tracking and and where people who have brain injury make a mistake and what they're looking at? Do you know of any research on that, Donna? I haven't. um, I know that when we did our treatment, we were really cognizant of um, 
you know, we'd focus in on what are the eyebrows doing and, and what is the mouth doing and all of those things. But then we would also focus them back in. Now let's look at the whole face. So we made a big effort to ensure they weren't just looking at, you know, one cue that they might use different cues for different emotions that, you know, sometimes the eyebrows are more um, a better cue than the mouth, for instance, depending on the emotion. But then we made them look at the whole face and talked about the face as a whole. But Don, do you know of eye tracking that that mapped that? Yeah, I did it. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> but, but honestly, no, that's okay. Cause it's not, it's, um, it's only an abstract that's published and we're actually working on a couple papers right now that are under review, but so you wouldn't know, but, but the, but going back, but, but this is relevant. So I gotta, I gotta pull it in. So what Barbara's saying is, so when we think about when we recognize other people's facial expressions, right, they're constantly changing and they're, they're dynamic. And so it's happening really quickly. And so there's a lot of research to show that when we're visually processing the face, you know, we do this in two ways. One of the, one of the ways is we, we process the face holistically, meaning we're looking at it all together as a whole and we're seeing it as kind of a one, one thing, right? And so being doing that allows us to very quickly look at somebody and say, this person's sad, this person's angry. You could do it in, in less than, you know, one or two seconds to be able to know that. We also look at the features individually, feature, separate, you know, feature by feature. We do that, but we would never be able to recognize emotions quickly if we didn't look at that face as a whole. And we did some research. So the neuroimaging research that we did, we wound up finding, we com- we took people with traumatic brain injury who had impaired facial affect recognition, and we compared them to people with traumatic brain injury who had normal facial affect recognition and people healthy controls who had normal facial affect recognition. And the part of the brain, what we saw is that people with traumatic brain injury who had impaired facial affect recognition had reduced activity in the part of the brain that's responsible for holistic facial processing. So we're seeing that that's that's part of the issue, that they're not pulling it together. So I think that that was a huge strength of the intervention that we did is that we always brought it back into let's pull all these pieces together. Let's what does the face look like as a whole is you're never going to get the answer from just one feature. You need to kind of look at the whole picture and what you're what you're seeing. One of the things that we know about people with brain injury is that they often have visual perceptual problems or visual just vision deficits that go undetected. So I'm just wondering, do you test for that before you do the research? Or that I guess it's like a two-part question. So part of it related to the research and then just in general, maybe a wondering if part of the difficulty that people with TBI have in recognizing the cues is their visual perceptual problem. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a little bit of a limitation. So we did not formally evaluate their visual, their their vision. I know for our affect recognition, the intervention study, we we looked at um, man, what do we do? We did look at their ability just to process. So face recognition in general, so face perception, we looked at that. But um, like I think we also some- did. Yeah, we also did the yeah. visual scanning. So you know how oh, people right. who have right hemisphere damage can ignore one one side. 
So we did do some visual scanning tests as well as part of our battery before doing the treatment, but we didn't, um, you know, that's about the level of what we did from visual perception. We didn't test it as fully as we could have. Right. We looked at visual neglect and face perception, like broader face perception, but we did not look at kind of more nuanced, like visual perception problems. Like we I think we were kind of asking, we're like, do you have any visual impairments that uncorrected visual impairments that are going to impede? As far as our eye tracking data, so they had, and the the machine that we used, they had to get calibrated to track. Um, like, so they would have to follow a ball across the screen and it, they would have to get calibrated. And if they didn't, they had to achieve a certain level of calibration to be included in that. But that still doesn't you know, it, there still could be problems, right? And so we actually had to throw out data because sometimes the the data was off. You could see that, you know, it was problematic. Um, so I think that there's more to be done with that. And I think what really needs to be done where we want to go with this is like, so where is the breakdown occurring? Is it is it a lower level visual perception, perceptual problem? Is it um, a saliency issue? And what I mean by saliency is do they know what to pay attention to? What are the cues that are important? that they should be looking at or are they looking at those important cues and not making a connection and being able to interpret those important cues so there could be all kinds of issues and depending on the person like we were talking about before everybody with a brain injury is different and there's a diffuse injury so some people you know everybody the you know the issue behind everybody's problem may vary depending on where the injury is yeah but important to know if you're going to do treat treatment right so it would be you know, to be able to personalize and focus what you're going to do. Yeah. Can I go back to that other intervention when we were talking about the movies? Well, it seems to me that that could be an intervention that would be helpful to do in a group where you specifically select um, people with TBI at different ability levels. So some people who have lower um, abilities to recognize and interpret and some people who have improved in that area or who just never had really a deficit in that area and um, do the intervention as with conversation among all of them so that um, I think there's a value in peer learning because, you know, when you've got the expert coming at you all the time, I cannot imagine that that would feel very good. I love that idea, Deb. And I do think um, there has been some of that communication groups training stuff talks a lot about that peer learning um, being being a, a big component of why it's why it works or why it's important in terms of doing that group scenario. So I agree. I think doing that movies and even just it gives people opportunity even to share similar, you know, well, I had a similar experience, but I didn't feel that emotion. I felt this emotion and talking about why is it different for different people? Because that's that's also a really typical thing to occur that sometimes you might feel angry in a situation, but it would actually make me feel sad. And and being able to talk about that and the whys and you know what kind of pieces of that scenario would lead us to each respond differently. So that group scenario would really um, support that well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. I know a lot of people, they're huge believers in the, the group therapy. I mean, and I've done a couple of things with group therapy. We didn't in this emotion recognition stuff, but I do, and but I can absolutely see the value. And I know the patients love it. They think that's, it's such a huge component to it, to see other people who are struggling with similar issues, but to, ha- but to have that feedback, you're right. I think they're so much more receptive to get the feedback from a peer, you know, than therapist. Mm-hmm. And peers, frankly, will give feedback in a way they would receive it in everyday life. 
So if they say something inappropriate or even something really well, the the feedback is going to be more authentic than as a therapist, we're very conscious of saying it in just the right way. Um, You know, we'll call things out, but we do it in our professional, with our professional hat on. Um, So I also think there's a lot of value in that in responding to feedback that maybe you don't want to hear or even how to respond to positive feedback. Uh, So I think even that piece is, is what makes that group dynamic so important. How much does the autism research cross over into the field that you guys are working with? Is it is it useful at all or is it just completely disparate pathologies? We've actually used the autism research. We used that a lot when we developed our treatment program. So we essentially took the concepts and ideas from that research, but then layered over top the strategies and approaches and things that we know work for people with brain injury. And also, you know, much of that literature and autism is on kids and we were focused on adults. So making sure it was, you know, age appropriate. Um, but yeah, I think there is a lot of overlap um, between the two. And I, and I think that you can certainly learn a lot from both sets of literature. It's just, like I said, the, the stuff with, with autism tends to be on kids. So some of the, the um, I guess, the consequences of the problem can be described quite differently because they're talking about the way emotion regulation and social emotion impacts children through development versus now we're talking about people where it should already be developed and they're using emotion in a much more advanced way. So I think that that piece is quite different, but the the general underlying concepts are similar. We look to it a lot, for sure. You guys um, have have you looked at peds at all? No, um, there are people doing some work in peds in this area, and I've I've read a little bit of that literature over the years simply because when I was a speech pathologist, I was a pediatric clinician. So um, I forgot that. Just, yeah, so I did you know years and years of work with with pediatrics. So I. I'm definitely interested and I've I've read it and I've referred to it, um, but we ourselves have never looked at pediatrics. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) I deal with the adult population. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Let's get that one done. And then maybe we can superimpose it on, on kids. Are they, I wonder if it's harder with children for a variety of reasons. I mean, they haven't necessarily developed those skills. So you're, you're teaching, it's brand new. It's not like reteaching something that already existed. It's a brand new. So, and you can't rely. There's also language issues with language development with kids. And so, you know, you, the way you talk about emotion and the way you make them think about it in terms of training the skill, if you want to think of it in that way is also very different, right? So you're relying more on um, pictures and, and, you know, toys and examples and and things like that. So the way you approach it is an entirely different place. We'll leave that to some other researcher. (laughs) You you got your own problems. I understand. I want to go back to when we were talking about training, like identifying emotions and then helping people to, I guess, recognize what they're feeling and then be able to interpret another person's. But do the people who go through the training, do they report being able to feel more? Because I I think life is more rich when you actually feel something. We had one person and um, Don probably knows exactly whose story I'm going to tell. But when we first started the training, um, he was someone who was that very flat affect and there was 
lots of um, issues with his wife because of his inappropriate responses to things or lack of response to things. And we did the training. And after the first week, because we were having him make the emotions in the mirror and, and things, he came back after the weekend and said, my face actually hurt on the weekend. And he realized, and he was, was he about 15 years post Don? He was quite I don't think it was that long. I want to say but, maybe five or so, but. Oh, I was thinking he was longer, um, but he was quite a ways out from his brain injury. And he said he recognized he hadn't, um, must not have ever used those muscles in all that time. So that increased his awareness. And he was commenting that things like going golfing with his friends were becoming a better experience because he was recognizing how they were feeling and asking them more questions. So whether or not he was physically associating those emotions and feelings more, I don't know, but he certainly reported huge impacts in his personal life. And his wife also reported some some pretty significant changes. Don probably has better examples, but that's the one I always remember because it was so poignant that, you know, the whole, my face hurts. <laughs> yeah. Cause he went home and he practiced in the mirror and he thought it was like fascinating. And the- the fascinating thing about him is going back to that whole self-awareness thing. He came into this program. He had no self-awareness. He had a problem. The only reason he came into the study is because his wife forced him, literally forced him. And he was like, okay. And I'll never forget the comment he made. He said, I'm earning my angel wings by being here because I don't need this. Like that he was doing us a favor. You know, and he was, I mean, obviously, you know, every research participant is, is helping us out and doing us a favor, not just us a favor, doing the brain injury community a favor, right? Um, but he didn't think he needed it for sure. And I I watched self-awareness develop in front of my face, which was fascinating, I think. Um, you know, and he, 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 like within a week, he had total buy-in to this. Uh, wow. it, was, it was amazing. And he just, he did, he made that comment about the interaction with his friends golfing, that it was just so much more of a rewarding experience for him, that it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was really interesting, like to say like, oh, these are the things you need to have that connectedness with other people. And that makes it important and meaningful. So that was really cool. Another example, and I've had this happen now a couple times, and we wound up doing a poster at ACRM of this more recently. Um, but way back when then when we were doing the dissertation, I remember one of the um, our subjects, our, our research participant, her mom said she cried for the first time ever since her brain injury. Now, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but I feel like I heard it. I used to work clinically a long, long, long time ago, and I felt like I heard it fairly regularly that our some participants, in contrast to being this kind of labile and overly emotional kind you couldn't cry. It was like almost like this emotional constipation of not being able to express this. And if you think about like what a release it is to be able to cry when you're sad. So this person felt sad, but didn't have the release of it. I've heard this numerous times. And so going through our program, it was the first time somebody was able to cry. And then more recently with one of the, um, so at the rehabilitation hospital of Indiana, one of our speech pathologists, she went through the training, learned how to do this. So she does this clinically at, at, at our hospital. So she does, they do assess for it. They do it clinically. And she had a patient. Oh, one of our physiatrists, our, our medical doctors, um, in our physical medicine rehab department, she had a stroke patient and the patient's biggest complaint was she could not cry since her stroke. And so the doctor knew about our study and knew about this type of things that can happen and referred this patient to the speech pathologist to get this intervention training. Yeah, which is really cool. Now, it's not like 
by the end of the training, the patient didn't full on cry, but she did shed some tears and definitely had some insights into her emotions and had more connections with her feelings and had a little bit more kind of release of those feelings. And yeah, so it was really neat. We did a poster on that at ACRM. That's incredible. I'm starting to hear uh, commonalities uh, with people who have psychiatric problems and some of the medications make them lose their feeling. They get, they become more flat affect. There's actually a lot of literature. Um, so when Peter was asking about the crossover with autism, there's actually a lot of literature that shows significant crossover with um, schizophrenia as well. So it's, it is fascinating that you do start to see these overlaps with the same sorts of um, issues and problems and concerns. You know, the, the way you treat them might look slightly different depending on that underlying cause, but you know, you, this is a more common problem for many people than than I think people recognize. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then it gets to be really complicated too, because then after a brain injury, I feel like a lot of people with brain injury get misdiagnosed with issues because most physicians um, aren't really necessarily familiar with the consequences of a brain injury. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to get see, see people, you know, misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder or all all kinds of stuff that's not necessarily really what the issue is. But you do see you do see it outside of brain injury. You see a lot of these problems and other, you know, um, affective disorders. Mm-hmm. So it's not uncommon. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with people not having a full understanding. And I think another piece of that puzzle is people not knowing who can help with certain problems. And I'm in a couple of brain injury Facebook groups, and it seems like survivors feel like their doctor doesn't get them or their doctor doesn't care. They're falling through the cracks. They don't know what's wrong with them. And and these people want help. And I, and I don't know how much of it is lack of insight, lack of them thinking that they're not a part of the problem. But to, to understand that you're not getting the help that you need leads me to believe that there's some insight there. Oh, yeah. No, there totally is. And they're not getting the help that they need to. I mean, there's a huge gap. I feel so fortunate, I think, to be where I'm at. But like, I'd be curious of the, your listeners here. How many people have heard the term physiatrist or physiatrist, depending on how you want to pronounce it? I know it could go both ways, but you know, I believe that everybody who has a brain injury should be should have a physiatrist. But ninety percent of the people I talk to who've had a brain injury, somebody, and I make that comment, they're like, "I have no idea what you're talking about." They think I say podiatrist. I'm like, "It's not. It's not a foot doctor. It's the other end of the body. It's the yeah. other, complete opposite side." <laughs> You know, and there's just mm-hmm. not enough. And then there's not enough physiatrists in the world. I do know um, through ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, they have um, one of their, um, the brain injury special interest group has a, a task force within it on chronic brain injury. And they recently developed a tip card for um primary care physicians. And this tip card is like, hey, here's here's stuff, here's information about a brain injury and here's what you need to know, you know, and it's it's like a two-sided tip card, I think, um, which is just, it's awesome, right? So whether the person with the brain injury brings it in or the physician, we're trying, they're trying to distribute it, disseminate it all, you know, 
um, throughout. So all over the place. So getting that word out there because these primary care physicians, you know, need to have more awareness and acknowledgement of these types of problems and what they should be doing and who they should be referring to. Mm-hmm. And I think about the the validation of that. So for people with brain injury who are feeling, everyone's saying, no, you know, we've treated what we can do. And they're like, no, but there's something else. And I know, you know, I want more help or I need more help. And their family members to have someone say, well, let's look at the social communication or the emotional responses to things. And let's sort of see if that's what's underlying all of these other issues to sort of feel validated, like, oh, yes, that is me. Yes, I do have trouble with that. Or the the partner recognizing, yes, they don't respond the way I would expect. You know, we saw so much of that when we worked with through our study and meeting families, because part of our study was we actually had family members or carers complete information as well. So we could see if they saw differences. But so often we heard the finally somebody is recognizing that this is a problem or somebody is raising this as an issue because they didn't have the words or the information to even describe why it was a problem or what the problem was. So when we attached words to it, the family's like, yes, that's what's going on. That That's where we're struggling. And it, it was, a, I think that alone often went so far for people, even without the treatment, just the fact that we acknowledge what was wrong. Having kind of a diagnosis. Somebody has a word uh, in, in, in an unofficial way, but yeah, just mm-hmm. exactly sort of identifying, um, you know, where the, what was causing all these different breakdowns that they couldn't figure out. Well, and on both sides, they think they're crazy, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's hard. It is hard because it's coming out in a behavioral way, but you just, you don't necessarily know where the breakdown is, but you're just like, something is totally off and I don't know what that is. And then you learn like, oh, they might not be able to recognize what you're feeling or they have, you know, it's like, oh, wait a second. This could be a huge piece to the problem. Mm-hmm. It's validating. In your work, your efforts, your studies, have you come across people who use drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism who learn from you and realize that they don't need those um, that type of a coping mechanism anymore? In our original study, treatment study, we actually excluded people who would be considered um, alcoholics or have significant drug or alcohol use. Um, you know, if they were just doing this sort of normal use, we, we, that was okay. So we actually don't know that Donna, I don't know if you've looked at that. I can't believe you remember that detail. I completely forgot that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that honestly, was like, I, wow. Um, no, not, not with that study. I, um, it, no, I don't know. So the other study that I'm doing with the alexithymia intervention, teaching people to have insight into their own emotions, that's a whole separate intervention that we're doing now that we're evaluating with a randomized controlled trial. Um, we had a pilot study that we did that. This alexithymia is actually highly correlated with poor coping skills and substance use. Mm. Um, you, I mean, if you think, of, well, there's a lot, there's different etiologies or reasons behind why somebody has an alexithymia. Like, so it could be neurological damage that disrupts a person's ability to access their emotions and be able to define and describe it. But our patients could also have alexithymia from before their brain injury as well. So because it could also come from just kind of how they were raised. And kind of if you think about where you the child that was raised, raised to get in touch with your emotions and talk about your emotions, and this is okay, or were you that child that was raised to believe like, oh, emotions are taboo or whatever, or, you know, it could also develop from having being a 
exposed to psychological trauma and it's almost kind of a, a ne- negative kind of um, coping skill, right? So if you're, if it is in that, in that vein, you know, you, you're kind of, you're coping or dealing those emotions that the life stressors are still coming, right? So you've got to deal with it in one way or another. And a lot of times they're, they're choosing these um, um, not great coping mechanisms and, uh, and substance use can be one of those. Um, we, that's research that's outside of traumatic brain injury that's connected to lexithymine substance use. So we're also looking at this relationship now in a current study with the relationship of lexithymine substance abuse in people with traumatic brain injury. Um, we have added an outcome measure to our current study to see if it does change anything with substance use. Hey everybody, I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important, recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery, and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting, and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research, and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm gonna be putting a link on the show notes, but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's stronger after stroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, stronger after stroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple. Strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right. Outside of the brain injury world, there's a researcher at Wayne State University who looks at chronic pain and has developed an intervention called the Emotional Awareness and Expression Therapy. And he does this with people with all different types of chronic pain, not people with traumatic brain injury. And essentially, it is addressing alexithymia. If you think about it, it's emotional awareness and being able to express those emotions that he has had tremendous success with that intervention for people with chronic pain, which is one of the reasons why we are looking at that relationship now in TBI, because if we can take our our alexithymia intervention in our patients with traumatic brain injury who have chronic pain, wouldn't that be cool if we can reduce their chronic pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure would. Yeah. I mean, the idea there is that if you're not processing and dealing and confronting those emotions that that psychological distress is manifesting through other mechanisms, somatization, it's coming about whether it's going to come out in headaches or stomach aches or what have you, because they're there. It's not to say that 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 emotion is not there, that it's just not being properly processed and worked through, and it's going to come out one way or another. So let's kind of identify it and deal with it. I have a, an infographic and you know how they're never wrong. Um, 
I've been, I've been staring at it since we first started thinking about talking together. And I just want to go through some of the things that they say are signs of alexithymia. Obviously, you found an op- infographic. What? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got. A, I got an infographic. Wow. I, people send me infographics for stroke for my blog, and they're always almost right, but they're kind of not right. Yeah, they're just oh, they're missing something. <laughs> so obviously, confusion about others' emotions. Obviously, difficulty with introspection. Is that one? Do you agree with that? And I think that goes back to what Deb was saying before. A little like you have that interoceptive awareness, but also, you know, introspection is a part of that and being able to kind of that self-reflection and internal being able to. uh, Yeah, I would say that that would be. Yeah, because you're trying to figure out your emotions. And if you can't do that, then. Yeah. I can almost guarantee you where that comment is coming from. So the, the big famous test of alexithymia is the Toronto alexithymia scale, which there's some controversy about, but that's neither here nor there. We don't need to get good on that rabbit hole. But um, one of the, there's, there's several subtests to that. And one of the subtests is something called externally oriented thinking. And that just means that you don't, you, instead of internally reflecting on your emotions, you are, you are more interested and more likely to focus on the external world in external cues, but not anything internally. So I'm, my guess is that's where that piece is coming from. Yeah, I would have said the same thing. I was thinking externally oriented thinking as well, Don. <laughs> How about this one? Uh, limited creativity? I see that a lot. That's, that's, um, has to do like that. And it's, it also overlaps with the perspective to, or, um, Empathy piece, Barb, kind of that fantasy scale thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand. I'm going to be totally transparent. I don't understand the connection there. You know, I don't, I don't see how, if you, if you have alexithymia, how you lack creativity. I don't, I'm not sure I get that one. Infrequent dreaming. Frequent dreaming. Infrequent. I've never heard that before. Yeah, heard that one? Okay. No. So it's an infographic. It can't be wrong. Starting <laughs> to one. wonder if I have this problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah, every time people come on and talk to us about problems, we think we have it. It's t- like taking abnormal psych in college. You're like, I am schizophrenic, I'm sure. <laughs> What about logical thinking? Obviously, that would, because it's so cognitive and it's emotional, part of being, uh, understanding your emotions is being logical. So that would, that would be affected, right? Logical thinking. I love how you just said that. Sorry. Go ahead, Barb. I was to say, absolutely. I see that connection because there's also a lot of information, not specific to alexithymia per se, but to emotion difficulties and decision-making for probably exactly that same reason, because when we make decisions or you think think through or reason a problem, generally part of that that logical thinking or reason critical thinking comes from emotionally what's going to happen. So how will that person respond and what will that what will be the impact on you? And usually the impact is an emotional one. Will you feel good at the end or feel bad at the end, right? So if you can't recognize all those emotions involved, it will impact that for sure. I, I love this question. And so and the thing, the reason why I'm actually loving it and a little bit surprised is because a lot of people think that emotions have no place in a logical world. And it's, but the, you, you get people that think that all the time and that's really not true. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, but I, I learned this term from one of my friend, my neuropsychologist 
friends at RHI, um, Dr. Sam Backhouse, and she taught me about something called wise mind. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, but it is literally the combination of logic and reason and emotion. You, When it comes to making decisions, you can't have just one or the other. They, these two things need to come together. And it's through the coming together of logic and reason and emotion that helps you to make the best decision for the reasons that Barb just said, right? If you're making a decision, you need to think through, well, what are the consequences of this decision? And how am I going to feel if any one of these consequences happened or or based on that, this is likely to happen if I choose this path, this is likely to happen if I choose this path, what and how am I going to feel in response to any one of those things? And I'll then I'll then I'll quote my other friend, Dr. Alan Weintraub, who gave me this terminology, he used this term that I, I I've stolen from him now called emotional foresight, you really need to be able to think through it's not just necessarily in the moment, am I going to go to the casino because I like gambling, but I need to think through if I go to the casino and I lose all my money and I can't pay my rent, how is that going to make me feel when I get thrown out of my apartment? Um, so yeah, those those two things have to definitely come together. So logic's definitely involved. All right. I got another one for you. You ready? Um, Bring it on. Pro- pro- probably pretty obvious. And you start to see how emotional context and understanding your emotions and others just is all throughout the brain and all throughout cognition. So of course they're going to impact on each other. This is probably going to be an easy one for you to just hit it right out of the park. Uh, difficulty coping with stress. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And some of that is um, that emotional regulation piece and, and recognizing, but then, you know, earlier when Deb was talking about um, the connection basically with, with mood and depression and, and all of those things, all of that gets tied together too. And it's, if you can't, Don was saying, if, if you have those emotions blocked in and you can't express them and you don't get that release and you don't get the response to, which is what contributes to the coping, then it can lead to stress and anxiety and depression and all of those things. Don, I don't know if you have more to add to that. I would just say that that's exactly right. And then um, Dr. Roger Wood and colleagues out of the UK did a study um, that examined alexithymia and in relation to different coping styles and found that people who were alexithymic who had lacked that emotional insight were more likely to have avoidant coping mechanisms. Hence, going back to that substance use, substance use is an avoidant coping mechanism. So yeah, so less likely to be able to kind of deal with stress. And then that stress is going to eventually turn into these more chronic emotion affective disorders. And it, it, it impacts on everything. How, how can we get people to pay more attention to this as a holistic part of treating people with brain injury. What do we got to do? Is there something we can do? I don't know. Your show. (laughs) (laughs) Say things like this definitely contribute. Um, Yeah. You can infographics, Pete. Infographics. You guys should do a. Um, you guys should do a, a a YouTube video about it. I bet. Well, it, I do have. I mean, it's, I sent you the brainline video. Well, they're not. It's not. I mean, it is a YouTube and it's out there, but only a certain amount of traffic is going to be driven there. Although a good amount of traffic has been given driven there. I've gotten tons of calls about alexithymia. And I think the more we can just get the word out, you know, I I know when um, 
when I first came to Australia, there are people actually, Australia does a lot. There are a lot of researchers here in Australia who do emotion-based work. Um, but just getting the word out more and getting people talking about it and making it, you know, when, when Don and I were first starting this and I was applying at conferences, like the large American speech pathology, the ASHA conference, anytime I submitted something based on emotion, I got a poster. So I would submit to do an oral presentation and they would always put it as a poster because I think, you know, that's going back some time, but from their perspective, that wasn't a speech pathology target area. It was just this little like, oh, that's kind of nice. So we'll just, you know, stick it over here. And they weren't giving it um, kind of the full stage. So I think just the more we keep putting it out there and keep trying and keep talking about it. And anytime you talk to clinicians and families asking about emotion, it just gets people thinking about it and recognizing that, like you said, Peter, it touches on every aspect of how they're doing. Um, but beyond that, like videos, um, you know, getting on the news, podcasts, any, any way you can talk about, it. I make sure that I put it into my speech pathology course at the university that we talk about it there. Um, so even in those training programs of clinicians coming up through, I think that it needs to be a component there as well. So it's just advocating, I think. We had a, a vision expert on a couple of episodes ago, and it was the same kind of problem. It wasn't addressed because nobody thought to ask people if they could see well, or if there was a field cut. And so, yeah. And, and that would, as you say, Barbara, would come down to um, a caregiver, maybe taking an interest but also the clinician educating the caregiver to take an interest that this could be a problem and you, nobody's testing it probably, but um, it, it's, it may very well be testable and it may be treatable. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Maybe here in the United States, it should be with the discharge planners for those units where people with brain injuries are treated because people are being discharged often sooner rather than later or people, they don't want to stay in the hospital. So maybe just some sort of, I'm being serious now, an infographic or some information. If you notice these symptoms, if this is how your life is going, please contact your neurologist, your physiatrist, some health professional who will listen to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. If we can only get that, that yeah. implemented, right? Right. Are there any video applications? I found a couple online of very, very subtle facial expression changes. Wouldn't it be great if you had hours of this? This is kind of what you did in your study where you were showing people film of different facial expressions. He just freeze. I'm freezing, right? Yeah. Oh, he's really, really frozen. Okay. He really is frozen. Yeah. He was like on the edge of my seat. <laughs> I know. Okay. And yeah, good. Did I scare you? <laughs> yeah. I saw the expressions on your face. Um, yeah. So what I was talking about was <laughs> I'll start where I ended. Um, these videos where there's very subtle changes in facial expressions. Is there a series of videos, kind of like you guys did in your studies, where you show them film of uh, subtle changes in facial expressions, maybe sometimes not so subtle. And maybe that was the gradation that it started out not subtle at all. And then it moved to very subtle. Is, is there any kind of video thing that 
we could do a repetitive practice thing where the caregiver doesn't, because people have to interact with people other than their caregiver, maybe a whole bunch of repetitions of interpreting emotions through facial expressions might be useful. And is there anything like that that's available? I don't think there's very much available with those more subtle emotions that are dynamic. um, Sorry. And dynamic. And dynamic. So when it's moving, there's the odd one that's got some pictures that are considered, you know, low intensity examples of emotion. But from a dynamic perspective, there's um, one or two tests out of Europe somewhere, I think that do a couple, but they're meant to be assessment tools. So I don't know how useful they would transfer. But this is something I've been working on outside of brain injury is trying to develop um, examples of emotion that aren't as obvious and also moving towards the way in which we label them. Because most of these programs talk about happy, sad, angry, fearful, disgust, and surprise. We don't use those words generally in everyday life. We talk about someone feeling, seeming anxious or irritated or annoyed or those kinds of things. So the the words we use to describe tend to uh, reflect probably, like you were saying, Peter, those lower intensities or less obvious examples of emotion. And that's what we see in everyday life. So I do think it's important. And I think exposing people to those kinds of examples would be useful. I'm not aware that there's any around that we could be using for treatment other than to try to pull, like we've used movie clips in our in our research, but you could just use a movie and watch a scene and pause it and talk about, well, what were they feeling? And why do you think they were feeling that? What was going on with their face? What was going on with their body language? Because it's all together. What did their voice sound like? What was happening in that situation or scenario that maybe let you make an inference or let you sort of predict that that person would respond in that way? Because that's the everyday stuff that we do, right? So I think as therapists, if you're really looking for something tangible to use, just grab a movie or a TV show and you know stop and pause at various scenes. Like I think that would be a really useful task that you could get um, that more, I always say ecologically valid, but that more everyday way. I mean, it's still acting, but um, it's a better example of how we use and express emotion and the way we need to use all of the cues around us to interpret not just one thing. So I think that that's a really good thing that therapists could could look to do. Just that's a good idea. Useful. Thank you. Uh, it's interesting because a group of researchers here in, in Bloomington, Indiana, in the psychology department that are doing research in autism in this area have been using clips from the office what? to evaluate social inferencing skills and doing eye, some eye tracking data with them and, and evaluating social inferencing with them. So kind of the, that everyday kind of more complex, more subtle cues, I guess. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a weird show to pick on but uh <laughs> i think so too lots of sarcasm right so there's that yeah, the true. you know the the dry the what's that word the um i can't think of the right word not the dry, but that that sarcasm that's sort of subtle Actually, so you reminded me of one of the other things. So obviously we were talking about how like lack of time and inability to kind of test these things and it's not included in the traditional battery and stuff. One of the other studies that Barb and I were involved in that we did is a quick indicator of emotion, perception, and empathy deficits, lack of smell. What? Really? That's COVID. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know, actually. So I've actually been told that we should, so I've been told that we should be looking at empathy in COVID patients who've lost their smell. Barb, let's do that. Um, <laughs> on that next week. Um, but <laughs> prior to that, like, so people with traumatic brain injury, actually, um, over 50% of people with traumatic brain injury lose their ability to smell. And that has to do with largely the fact that the olfactory bulb and nerves are located just kind of right around the prefrontal cortex. And a lot of these injuries are that prefrontal, that right in front of your head. And so it's causing damage to that area of the brain. Um, so your olfactor, your olfactory senses, your ability to smell and taste often get affected. But it's also the prefrontal cortex is kind of where all of this empathy is and social monitoring and all of this other stuff is because of the proximity of those olfactory nerves. I feel like that prefrontal cortex where everything is kind of coming together when that's damaged, you're going to, you're going to see these deficits in smell. And so it's just like, so the one study that we did, the sensitivity of uh, dysosmia or that loss of smell, I think it was like 70 or 80% of predicting an, uh, an emotion perception deficit. Hmm. And then we found out that people who had impaired smell had significantly lower empathy. Wow. Not everybody's aware of a lack of smell or taste. Some many people, like probably fifty percent of people, are aware. And it often is if they lose their sense of taste, and they're like, "Oh, I can't taste anything anymore. Oh, I can't smell anything either." So if a clinician hears their patient saying that, that should be a red flag. Like, "Oh, I bet you you're going to have you know emotion perception problems and empathy problems." Hmm. It reminds me that the test for Alzheimer's, the one where they have them see if they can smell peanut butter, like in, and if they can't, it's like a, uh, it, it's a precursor to development of, um, of Alzheimer's or dementia and or dementia. Yep. Yep. Because of the parts of the brain that are being yeah. affected or surrounding that area. Okay. I got one more on the infographic. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> All right. And um, Don, you definitely mentioned it, Barbara. I think you mentioned it as well. What aches and pains from stress? It says from stress, but what does it, what's the pain connection between emotion and pain, like physical pain? I, I think it just, it's that idea that if you are not dealing and processing those emotions, that those stressors, right? So you're confronted with stressors. And if you're not processing through that and dealing with it, it doesn't go away. You you can't just ignore it and, you know, kind of tamp it down and, oh, it's gone. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. You may not be cognizant of it, but it is manifesting in all different kinds of ways. So I think that it is kind of, you know, you know, kind of eking out in other areas. The other thing I do want to say with alexithymia, its relationship, I think I had mentioned it earlier, some people with alexithymia could have heightened awareness into these physical sensations, but have no acknowledgement that these physical sensations are are connected with an emotion. And there's a misidentification of these physical sensations as pain. Hmm. So it's a way for the body to send you an alert that something is something's off. And I also think in our medical model, we don't look at pain so much as being an emotional suppression, but rather uh, more biomechanical 
Yeah, I would say that's true. And I think a lot of people, but it, but it's all in your head. But well, what is that? Yeah. What does that mean? It's not just all in your head. It's it's not all in your head. There, that's making too light of it. And this mm-hmm. is like to make it. It almost make takes the power away from the individual. It's like right, because the person is in power of this. You know. Yeah. It's all in your head. That's where where everything is. Exactly. <laughs> where, do you, where do you expect yes. it to be? <laughs> <laughs> on your head. Oh. Fused. Yeah. <laughs> so accurate. <laughs> I don't know. I think I've run out of questions. I I've run out of infographic stuff. So <laughs> I'm at a loss. Hopefully, you guys got enough material for your show. I think we have enough material for our show. Absolutely, you guys have been great. We've learned a lot, and usually, what Deb and I do is we do two hours with you guys. And then we do another hour of us talking about what the heck did we just learn? Because that was mind blowing. And we'll probably do that and we'll get another episode out of it. Oh, fabulous. We really appreciate you guys inviting us and just um, giving space to this topic. Because, you know, as we said, the more we can raise awareness and the more people can think about this and how it's so connected to all the other aspects of their, you know, their therapies and um, their day-to-day functioning. That's amazing. Yeah. Let's get the word out and anything that you guys want us to throw up in the show notes, um, please do. And we tend to talk about things like if it's a website or something, we'll talk about it episode after episode. So anything that you have in terms of resources that can help folks that have problems with alexithymia, um, yeah, let, let us know. Yeah. And I sent you guys um, an email with some links to that communication training, but two of the programs I linked in were both, um, they're both supported by ASBE, which is the Australasian Brain Injury Society on this side of the world. Um, And they've got a store with fairly affordable resources for clinicians that they have converted most of them to PDFs to make them easily, you know, convertible across international borders. But, um, you know, there's some stuff on face things. There's the communication partner training. There's conversational training. So for clinicians who are just kind of looking for a space and then Don, hopefully you'll be able to share that app soon. That would be exciting. I just have one more question. Do you write these grants or do you have someone who helps you do that? (laughs) She does it. She wishes she had somebody to do it. Exactly. (laughs) Just trying to find out what other teams are, you know, what their operating process is here. Are you the principal investigator on most of these? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am. It's up to Mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. You might get somebody to write a subsection of something that they're an expert in, but usually it's the the principal investigator that does that stuff. Yeah. Typically the lion's share and then you have co-investigators. And so you'll have them kind of read through, make comments. And then if you have a co-investigator that has a different area of expertise of something that you're working on, they'll contribute and stuff. Way back when, so when all of this alexithymia stuff was, I got started with this, my university had convinced me that I needed to do a startup company because, yeah, well, they were trying to say, well, you guys are all creating really cool things and we could be creating products, right? And this was, I was, I was intrigued by this because I'm tired of creating things that sit on the shelf, right? And that don't get utilized. And what I was told with this, well, if you have a business, if you're creating this product, the whole point is you're going to be getting this out there. It's going to be disseminated. People are going to be adopting it and utilizing it and all of 
this stuff. And I'm like, cool, but I'm not a business person. And I'm certainly, and you know, I'm not a capitalist. I'm not a business person. Like, so that is very contra me, you know, but if this can get out there and help people, that's great. Um, ultimately that it turned out that really, really wasn't for me. And so like I had created this business called Emote Ed. So emotional education combined Emote Ed. And I had it for a couple of years and that sort of, I, I dissolved that because it just, it really is not my, it's not my jam. But when I was doing that, they did give us additional grant specialists that were supposed to help us with getting business grants. Um, you can't do everything. No, no. You know, and I'm much more excited about this app now that the folks from the UK have created and said, you know, I'm like, oh my God, you put all this work into this. This looks amazing. How much is it going to cost? And they're like, it's free. <laughs> I'm like, what? What? <laughs> Oh my gosh. I'm like, oh my God, that's so novel. How awesome. And you know, that just me it just makes my day. You know, this that's what this is about is getting it out there, not creating barriers to access to this stuff. There's already too many barriers to begin with. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Making it free or as close to free as possible whenever we can. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. wonderful. Okay. All right, we need to let these guys go. We do. Hey, take care of that eye, Barbara. Thank you guys. Thank so you. Much. Yeah, I can't even tell. Looks fine, but yes, take care That's of perfect. it. Perfect. Yeah. Beautiful eyes. Well, thank you both. This has been fantastic. It's been a lot of fun. Good. Let's keep in touch. Thank yeah. you yes, so much. We look forward to hearing the episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know. Keep us posted. It'll have yeah, music we'll... behind it. It'll be very nice. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And Barb, we'll be in touch. I'll email you. Yeah, that sounds fabulous, Don. We'll talk soon. Thank okay. you. Thank have you. A good night, guys, and a good day, Barb. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.